For me, the most disappointing thing right now in the epigenetic clock literature is our lack of mechanistic understanding. This is really where my lab is interested in moving more towards. So really understanding, number one, what is it that drives epigenetic aging or what is it that we're actually picking up? Um, and then how is that actually linked to the phenotypes or manifestations of aging that we can actually predict using clocks? This is a conversation with Morgan Levine and Jamie Justice on biomarker standardization. Morgan Levine, an assistant professor at Yale University, integrates theories and methods from statistical genetics, computational biology, and mathematical demography to develop biomarkers of aging for humans and animal models using high-dimensional omics data. Jamie Justice, assistant professor at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, is a translational scientist conducting aging research, from basic biology of aging to clinical trials, aimed at improving physical function and extending healthy lifespan. We discuss how, even though there is no perfect biomarker for aging yet, we can use the tools we have to quantify aging. If we want to halt and ultimately reverse aging, we first need to be able to measure it. And that's what this talk is about. If you want to do something about the problem of aging, if you want a longer and healthier life, you can find the program and lecture summaries of Foresight's Biotech and Health Extension Group, sponsored by 100 Plus Capital, at foresight.org and apply to join. Today I'm going to talk about quantifying aging, mainly using DNA methylation biomarkers, because this is mostly what we work on. And to jump right in, because I know we don't have a lot of time, to me, actually being able to quantify the aging process, I think is one of the most important things right now in the field. There's a lot of emphasis on can we actually intervene in aging and either reverse or slow it, but I would argue that there's no way to actually definitively test if you did that. You can't directly measure the thing that you're trying to intervene in. So a lot of people think, at least in the general public, when you say, you know, what is aging, they think of chronological aging. And, and really that's because chronological time is correlated with actually this biological aging process so these, you know, however you define this, but changes that really alter a living system and, and how we define it is just makes it more vulnerable to failure and decline. But we know that unlike chronological time, the rate of biological aging is malleable. So it doesn't take at a constant rate. We can see this between species differences, between within species differences. So we actually think if we can quantify this and distinguish it from chronological age, this will actually give us exciting tools that can help us in these three areas. So first, they'll provide uh, clinical trial inputs, which I won't go into too much because I'm sure Jamie is going to really go into that. But essentially, it'll give us endpoints to actually measure whether we've slowed or reversed the aging process. Often in mouse studies or, or other model organisms, they'll use lifespan, but in human populations, this really isn't feasible. Um, it also will inform us on basic biology, so understanding the mechanisms that either drive the ticking of biological aging or modulate it. And then finally, it can be used for understanding risk stratification. This can be on a personal level for people who like to do kind of quantified self and actually understand their own risks and how to change those, but also on a population level to inform things like policy or uh, secondary prevention. So as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about epigenetic aging. People have probably heard about epigenetic clocks, but just to give kind of a brief rundown of what we actually mean when we talk about this is that we actually think, so the epigenetic pattern in a cell is really what's dictating the cellular state, the cellular functioning. So most of your cells, aside from somatic mutations, have the same DNA, 
But what makes a stem cell, stem cell, or skin cell, skin cell is really the epigenetic pattern. And this is really kind of personified in Conrad Waddington's landscape, where he talks about how with epigenetic changes, you can get an undifferentiated cell that will basically traverse this landscape and differentiate into different cell types that have different epigenetic patterns. But aside from differentiation and cell state and cell identity, we actually think, and people have shown that the epigenetic pattern can also distinguish young cells from old cells. So this is really where we're interested. And for this, we measure um, DNA methylation, which is just one form of an epigenetic modification. So briefly, it takes place at these, what are called CPG dinucleotides. And basically the cytosines can become methylated. And what we see in aging is not just a change, not just increases in methylation or decreases, but really a change in the pattern. So you'll have some of these CPG sites that tend to show declines in methylation with aging. And this is really measuring the proportion of cells in a sample that have methylation at this site. So for instance, you might have a sample from a 20-year-old where you have 90% methylation here. And then by the time you look at 80-year-olds, you'll have on average 60%. You'll have others that actually increase or become more um, what we call hypermethylated with aging. So perhaps 5% in a young individual and this goes at 45%. These two are kind of what we consider epigenetic drifts. So it's moving towards 50%, where you kind of have a random 50-50 split in the cell population. But we also see sites that change away from the mean, so not a regression towards the mean, where you might start with relatively low methylation or relatively high and actually move more towards the extremes with age. So because this has been so striking, people have developed these epigenetic clocks. And really what they are is they're they're basically saying we can look at a sample and using some algorithms, say, based on the pattern at specific sites that we are measuring, can we predict out the age of the sample? So the first clock was developed in 2011. I won't go through all these clocks for the sake of time. And the, the clocks up until our clock in 2018 were all developed as predictors of chronological age. So we usually refer to these clocks as what we call first generation clocks. So they're trained as chronological age predictors. However, then we and then others also showed that you can make these clocks that are actually much more robust in terms of predicting things like mortality or disease incidence trained on aging correlates. So that's kind of what has been done more recently and where the field is going. So in terms of thinking what the goals should be of having a good aging biomarker, so number one, it should have good prediction. And this is prediction of chronological age, because of course you need a biomarker that tracks with age to say it's actually an aging biomarker. It shouldn't be a perfect prediction of chronological age because again, chronological age is imperfect proxy of this biological aging process we're trying to capture. And for prediction, we also want it to be able to predict outcomes above and beyond chronological age. So looking at people the same chronological age, will it differentiate people who are at greater risk of mortality or greater risk of disease incidence, et cetera. The other thing is it should have high precision, in my opinion. So I'll talk a lot about this in a minute. But basically, if I measure the same sample twice, am I going to get the same answer? That's really important for people who are measuring these, who are tracking them in themselves, or it's really important for things like clinical trials, maybe less so for kind of large population data or epidemiological data. But in terms of what we're mostly working on, the precision becomes really important. Obviously, it should be non-invasive. This is a problem when we're talking about measuring aging in tissues that are actually not accessible. Preferably, you want something that's modifiable, because if it's not modifiable, I would argue, why do you need to know the epigenetic age of something? Um, 
And then finally, working on things to make it more affordable. So I'll touch upon a little bit of each of these, maybe not so much the affordability and modifiability, but that's really the goal. All right, so talking about precision and reliability. So basically what I mean by this is if I split a single blood sample, so I take one blood sample from someone at a single time point and split it, and I assess the epigenetic age on that sample twice, will I get the same answer? Or will I get one of the samples says that person has an epigenetic age of 50 and the other one says it's 55? And you can imagine why this might be a problem for clinical trials or personal tracking. So um, actually about two years ago when I started working with Elysium, this was a question that came up because obviously if you're going to offer a direct-to-consumer test, you want to make sure you're giving people an answer that you can stand behind. And I discovered pretty quickly that actually the existing epigenetic clocks are fairly bad when it comes to this. So these are samples. They're not in different batches. They're literally measured on the exact same array, the same blood sample, and you can get differences. Five years, in this case, for phenoage, it's actually really bad. You get up to nine years difference in the exact same sample. Grimage is actually one of the better ones. This is partly because Grimage includes chronological age and gender, which obviously in replicates is going to be a constant. But you still get some deviation of about two and a half years um, in Grimage. Before putting out index that Elysium offered, I did a lot of work on actually trying to figure out how to deal with this. And then since then, um, my postdoc, Albert Higgins Chen, has been working on this. So I'm going to talk about what he's kind of done for a paper that's currently under review. So the reason this happens is because actually a lot of the CPGs that we measure on these arrays are very noisy. So this is the ICC, which basically you can say how, how much agreement you get between replicates. And you have a lot of them that are very poor. And this kind of shows the average methylation level and as a function colored by this ICC. So you can see CPGs that are very hypermethylated, so tend to be towards fully methylated across all the cells in your sample or hypomethylated also tend to be noisy. So there's actually some biological explanation for this. It's also because these CPGs don't vary that much. So a certain amount of noise is going to seem like a big deal in CPGs that have low variance. So, you know, one thing that people might say is, okay, well, what, what if we just exclude noisy CPGs and then remake clocks? So we tried to do this first. This shows how much we did phenoage here just because it was the noisiest showing how much it deviates if you do this. And really, you can get all the way up to 0.9, and you actually don't improve this kind of replicate reliability that much. But what you do lose is your ability to predict things. So if you're cutting off at 0.9, you get this sudden decrease in your ability to predict mortality. So this is obviously not the right way to go. And actually, this suggests that even these noisy CPGs are actually really biologically meaningful. So the solution we came up with is, can you actually capture more higher order patterns across the genome? So if you think about this, CPGs are highly correlated. And really what the clocks are doing are picking out one CPG to represent some signal that actually a lot of them are sharing. So you pick this CPG, but really the signal is captured by all of them. So what we, we um, wanted to do is actually say, well, what if we looked at all of them to get a more reliable signal, right? Maybe one of the CPGs has some error in it. But if you look at the group, you're going to actually do a much better job 
the group shouldn't be picking up this kind of random noise. Um, so that's what we did. We have the paper on bioarchive. It'll hopefully be out soon. So if you want to go into the statistical details, which I won't do today, feel free to check out the paper. This is what it looks like for after we apply this. So these gray dots are the the original pheno age, and you can see they're high, they're off this kind of zero intercept slope of one, but you get really good, almost perfect correlation after you apply this method. And it doesn't just apply to the pheno age clock. And again, here you get deviations of nine. We bring them down to most of them, all of them are under two, most under one. And this happens across the board for all the clocks we tested. So the gray is the ICCs for the clocks in their original form. The blue is for them after we apply this method. So you're getting the same clocks, just much more precise. And then the important thing is, okay, well, did we do anything to actually hurt our ability to predict outcomes? Here I'm just showing mortality, but we looked at tons of different outcomes. What you can see, the blue again is the new method. The gray is the original. Even Grimage, which is highly predictive of mortality, improves a little bit using this method. So we don't actually lose our ability to predict. If anything, we actually gain um, some predictive ability. This shows longitudinal tracking of either the original clocks here and here, or these corrected clocks. And as you can see, there's a lot less jumping around. Some of these are really clean in terms of longitudinal tracking, so they should help with that kind of data. And then the other thing that, again, we're really interested in is how would this impact using clocks for testing interventions? So this is kind of the idea that you'll have a placebo and an intervention for people who are, let's say, chronologically 50 years old, you follow them up a year, and maybe they only deviate now by one year epigenetically. Can you pick that up using the original clocks that are noisy versus picking them up using these new clocks? Um, and Albert did these power calculations that show for given effect size, so how much you think your intervention's going to change epigenetic aging, what the sample size you would need to, to differentiate your case control using in the gray, the original clock, and blue, the new clocks. So this is for all these different clocks. You can see that the blue one is much lower. So you actually hugely increase your power. So you need much fewer samples than you would have otherwise needed had you used the original clocks. And we did this imagining it in an older population or even a younger population that has less deviation in epigenetic age already. And then we're also really interested in in vitro studies of epigenetic aging, and we're doing a lot of those in-house. So we just took some of our data we have from there. Uh, This is human astrocytes that we serially passaged. You can see that using the original clocks, which is this top row, you get, you know, lots of jumping around, not this very clear pattern. Using these new clocks, you get really precise, and actually, you can hardly tell the difference between the technical or the biological replicates until about passage eight, when they actually start diverging. We actually think this is biologically real, and it's not actually just something to do with noise. Again, we looked at kind of this power analysis for if you want to do drug screenings in in vitro experiments using either the original versus the new clocks. And again, we find that you need much fewer samples to do this for the new clocks. All right, so that is all I have on that section. And then this is where I'm going to briefly just talk about a brand new clock that we just We're almost actually, it's not even completed, but I wanted to share it with you guys. It doesn't have a name yet. So if people have a good name, 
feel free to let me know. Right now, we're just calling it a system clock. So in an ideal world, you would actually be able to non-invasive get measurements of aging in different physiological systems or organs, right? We would want a brain age, a kidney age, a liver age. In reality, most of these samples require biopsy. Often they're done post-mortem. So you're not going to be able to track these easily. So this is kind of what we we tried to do. The nice thing is our phenoage, which some of you are familiar, demonstrated that we can actually capture kind of multi-system composite aging measures using DNA methylation in blood. So we actually think that the signals in there, you just kind of have to pull it out. So our goal here was to build system-specific measures that when you combine them, you can actually get a robust overall aging signal. So what we did is we combined first clinical biomarkers, trait variables, using unsupervised machine learning approaches. So we kind of designated them to a different system or organ group, use unsupervised machine learning to find kind of patterns in that group. And then we use supervised learning to train a methylation predictor of those patterns. So we got scores for what we call brain or cognitive inflammation and cytokines, immune, which is leukocyte measures, a metabolic one, hormonal, kidney, liver, cardiovascular, and red blood cell slash platelet measure. And I'll just briefly show how the full system one compares. I'm not going to go too much into the individual ones, but you can pull them out and look at them individually. Um, So we compared them against just three of the existing epigenetic clocks. Um, So this is for all-cause mortality, and you can see it's substantially better predictor of all-cause mortality than existing clocks, much better predictor of cognitive functioning than any of the existing clocks. And we think that's really being driven by the fact that we have this brain cognitive component to it, much better predictor of physical functioning and also comorbidity counts. And we have other outcomes too. And to borrow this term from Mike Snyder, this agotypes term, the nice thing about this is you can pull apart the systems and actually look at profiles of people. So you might have two people that have the exact same full system age, but one of them might get that because they have accelerated liver aging. Another one might get that way because they have accelerated in some other system. So we can actually define different subtypes or agiotypes or whatever term you want to use for people. We actually think this will help in potentially in intervention trials because you might not want the same intervention for everyone depending on what their subtype is. So finally, kind of what Allison mentioned, I just quick, quickly wanted to talk about this critical next steps I think need to happen in the field. For me, the most disappointing thing right now in the epigenetic clock literature is our lack of mechanistic understanding. This is really where my lab is interested in moving more towards. So really understanding, number one, what is it that drives epigenetic aging or what is it that we're actually picking up? And then how is that actually linked to the phenotypes or manifestations of aging that we can actually predict using clocks? So we're trying three different approaches to get at this. So we're doing, as I I mentioned, a lot of in vitro analyses. We're also doing a lot to try and look at single cell DNA methylation and really understand how this pattern plays into cellular heterogeneity and shifts in uh, cell populations with aging. And then finally, we're using computational approaches to break apart the clocks and figure out what the different components are that give way to the overall clock score. We think that the different components will actually have different kind of biological mechanisms. You can't study the clocks as a whole for a mechanism. And finally, I uh, just want to acknowledge all the people in my lab at Yale. I can't, I couldn't list all collaborators, but to some of my collaborators elsewhere in my funding from NIA and Glenn Foundation. And then 
Allison, are we doing questions now or after Jamie? I would say we go with Jamie because then we can have this like an all on discussion. Thank you so, so much, Morgan. I just shared your health extension challenge in the chat here so people can can look can look it up and also see where where what what other keynote speakers have um, produced as challenges. Thank you, Morgan. This is fantastic. I think you already have a suggestion for a name, which is OmniAge here in the chat. So uh, maybe you can maybe you can answer that and, and see and see how you like it. Okay. Thank you so much, Morgan. I really really appreciate it. Uh, and maybe you can already uh, answer a few questions in the chat, and then we we'll move to a discussion after Jamie's presentation. Jamie. Thank you so much for coming. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, I'm super excited about your presentation. I think Morgan has already, you know, paved the way and gave a really good introduction for why people make here. And so thanks a lot. The stage is yours and we'll move to discussion afterwards. Okay, great. Thank you. So I'm Jamie Justice and it's quite an act to follow Morgan. Always intimidating to, to share after you. I want to thank you all so much for hosting me virtually and a special thanks to you, Allison, for your tireless efforts to organize and herd all of us cats. So I'm going to give a talk that's a little bit different. And for here, I'm going to be focusing more on my work around trials. And so I like clinical trials. I work in them and, and really what I'm interested in is, is applying and, and use case for biomarkers in clinical trials. Hopefully most who are here have some familiarity with geroscience and the pillars or hallmarks of aging and might be familiar that there are a number of promising interventions that can target this process. So what I'm showing here, these are just a flavor of various behavioral, dietary, and pharmacologic interventions that are now being advanced to clinical trials. And so as we are thinking about moving these to trials, we have to develop trials in order to test them and create frameworks for how we should do that. So this is a translational research pipeline for drug development, and it's a really arduous process. So the timeline is well over a decade from discovery uh, to FDA approval, and very few drugs make it through the gauntlet of rigorous testing. And so the estimates that are shown up here, these are actually, these are for relatively traditional linear, linear disease pathways that have generally accepted outcomes to weigh success versus failure. As most on here know, that's not the case for aging. So in the absence of really clear regulatory pathways, I've been fortunate to work within two different paradigms for moving treatments into clinical trials. And this includes various disease-focused trials and larger prevention trials. And so in one, we might take a single investigation or investigational agent or treatment, and we begin testing it in different disease cases um, on an individual basis. And so then investigators would actually be testing this sort of in different disease silos and then applying to FDA to get an indication for each one of these diseases individually. And, you know, it's not great, but it actually is a, still is a good application of geroscience um, is that it provides new treatment options for hard to treat diseases. But, you know, one of the greater hopes is that if we really harmonize some of the approaches and we can look collectively across these diseases, then eventually what we begin to observe may converge and make a mosaic that looks a lot like aging. And this is, again, this is something that having a harmonized set of biomarkers and a standardized process to implement those becomes really critically important 
important in taking these two as to sort of the next stage. There's also an alternative approach that we've been working hard on, and this is to consider really what an aging outcome should be and to design a trial with sufficient power to test that. And so in thinking about what that aging outcome is, is that it has to balance our collective scientific understanding um, of what aging is or look like, those ageotypes. I love that so much. I was really looking forward to Mike, Mike Snyder's talk today and was disappointed that he wasn't here to join us. But, you know, it's also very important that when we're thinking about this, it has to communicate back to the FDA in the U.S. so that we need to try to find an intervention that changes the way an organism feels, functions, and survives. And so I would argue that both of these approaches are really critical to push progress forward. And I've been afforded the opportunity to work on both. And so there are key clinical trial design elements that are common to both, you know, certainly, you know, we're testing interventions, we have different populations. And of course, the outcomes and biomarkers share a certain flavor within the interventions. I mean, the critical component is that we're looking at interventions that target critical aging pathways. There are some differences, certainly with treatment and trials is that, you know, they have a certain tolerance for higher risk, newer or uh, repurposed agents, whereas prevention trials tend to have a more established safety record. And populations obviously would differ depending on existence or absence of disease. And really for the outcomes and the biomarkers, I'm going to put these both up together is that, you know, I think they can be considered along the same continuum. And I'm going to come back to this continuum idea in a little bit. When we're thinking about these, I think of them like Russian nesting dolls for some of the outcomes, especially for the treatment trials, is that you might be doing this under a disease condition. But ultimately, what we're really interested in, whether we're talking about biomarkers, we're talking about outcomes, is that a lot of us, even though you're looking at this in a disease condition, it's like, you know, we're really interested in sort of the next layer. And so what are the geriatric facing or the aging facing outcomes and biomarkers that can really harmonize? And so I think the biggest underlying thing here when we talk about biomarkers for trials is that that this is that if you take nothing back from my talk, it's this, is that there is no perfect biomarker, but some biomarkers are useful. And really what it comes down to is the context of use. And so now, again, another step backwards. I know that we just had recently one of our FDA officials talking about biomarker qualification. It was a really fantastic talk for anybody who might have missed it. So starting with a centering definition, you know, biomarker, it's an objective measurement that reflects the interaction between the biologic system and a potential hazard. And so in the FDA language, some of the things they talk about for qualification divide these two, right? That you're looking at something that might be an indicator of a normal or pathogenic process, or it can be this measure as a response to intervention. But the way that a lot of us thinking about it with trials are really considering this is the emphasis is on the interaction of the two is that it's not good enough to have one or the other. It's really how they play together, testing the biology, but looking also at the response to an intervention. And again, going back to some of these FDA language, just again, it's a nice centering thing for those of you who missed it. I'm sure Allison can show you where to find it online. But so these are some glossary terms for different biomarker classes or context of use that are really critical. Um, You know, for trials, ones that I'm considering most often are things about monitoring. So looking for things that can assess status through serial measurement. That's really important for trials. Also safety, of course, is looking for the likelihood, presence, or severity of toxicity of different agents that we might be testing. And then what I consider the holy grail really is looking at the pharmacodynamic or response to intervention. And so these are things that can actually look at the biologic response in a person who's received treatment. It could be on target, whatever is really 
specifically being targeted with that agent, or it might be more collectively looking at larger aging phenotypes, uh, what kind of what kind of markers might be present there. It's not that these other uses are not important. Again, they're critically important, but it would really depend on the context of use. For example, if you're doing a treatment trial, um, looking at diagnostic or susceptibility of risk might not be quite as important because the disease would already be present. However, there are some contexts in which this does become important for trials. And so I'm going to finally get into a couple of example cases after all that information. The first are trials on xenotherapeutics. So this is a really great example of that mosaic approach that I talked about before about testing one agent in a number of different conditions. And so this figure shows that really well. In addition to being what I think is maybe one of the most terrifying digital images of a human, it actually gives really great content to show the number of different conditions that xenotherapeutics and xenolytics are being uh, tested in. So all of these, this is just published in 2020. It's already grossly outdated. I think at my last count, there's between 20 or maybe upwards of 27 different interventions being tested that are listed on clinicaltrials.gov. I have one of these starred here for Dizatinib and quercetin, which in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a use case of the translational geroscience network that I was fortunate enough to lead. And I, I want to highlight a couple of things with this trial. One, IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a quintessential disease of aging. It's ultimately fatal and it has an estimated survival of only three to four years after diagnosis and there are very few available treatments. And though the etiology of this disease is really poorly understood, converging evidence suggests that the aging process cellular senescence may be at the nexus, a central contributing mechanism in this disease. And so some of the foundational data in this regard was shown here. This is by a couple of rock stars in our field, Nathan Labrasher and uh, Marissa Schaefer, which if you have not invited them to give a talk yet, shame on you, put them on your list. You know, they really did do some of the really great work looking at markers of senescence in this disease. And this became hugely foundational. They found that not only were some of these senescent cells identified by P16 positive within the lung and uh, fibroblast and honeycomb structures, um, but they also found that expression of certain senescence markers and expression of senescence associated secretory products also had increased, were elevated with increasing IPF disease severity. And so that was important, plus some of their preclinical work and disease models showing possible use of things like dasatinib and quercetin in that disease context. And so that was the foundational evidence that we used to launch the first trial of senolytics. And we did this in persons who had stable idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis with an age criteria. I'm highlighting this because we did not have a biomarker available that was standardized or validated to say whether or not the people that enrolling in this trial had senescent cell burden that was elevated at the time of trial entry. We didn't have it because it doesn't exist. So this is one of those context of use things that we're going on diseases that known to have some kind of senescence associated feature based on foundational evidence. And then we move into trials without actually screening or gating for entry yet because simply it doesn't exist. And, and the reason it doesn't exist is one's development and two is that there, there are a lot of efforts ongoing in order to try to move that forward. And so anyway, we enrolled these folks and, and what was published is our first 
first open-label trial of dosatinib and quercetin. It was a short three-week intermittent dosing trial. This was followed up by work that was run exclusively with our colleagues at Texas that they did a randomized control trial. And this was really a feasibility-tolerability kind of study. And so we are looking at what different assessments we could possibly do in these people, dosing strategies, and really important, what kind of functional measures can they tolerate? What outcomes, patient-reported outcomes, can they contribute? But really central to this effort was, are there biomarkers that we can use in the context of a trial? This was sort of the wild west of, of doing Burke and senescence, and there simply weren't any uh, that were assessed. And so long story short, the, we found some interesting things in the trial. The ones that have been, that we're using to drive next stage, we're actually planning for an efficacy trial now. And, and those are really because we saw that there were some improvements in mobility. And we saw that there were clinically meaningful improvements in mobility in the absence of pulmonary specific measures. And really importantly, in the absence of really solid biomarkers. And so the take-home point is that there were no withdrawals, even though there were some anticipated side effects that were seen. There's some potential improvements in functional measures that are common to geriatric assessment, but not disease-specific measures. And the biggest point for me was that we didn't have at the time of doing that trial, anything that really could comment on the pharmacodynamic response. So, right, we didn't know exactly what the senolytic effect was. Did we reduce burden? And we had a few insights from circulating markers, but back to this point is, you know, standardized, validated biomarkers are absolutely essential to driving next stage. And the other thing that we were still working on is how do we um, integrate those sort of target specific biomarkers with more general biomarkers of aging to really dig into sort of that ager type that Morgan did a great job describing. And so again, the efficacy trials are warranted, but we really need aging outcomes and biomarkers. And there's also another caveat here is that when doing trial design, we also have to sort of accept the risk of a potentially a a failed trial on some disease specific endpoint as even if it means that you might have a meaningful change in some kind of aging outcome and vice versa. Okay, so back to biomarkers, there have now been some efforts in this world to sort of show follow up to that, that there might be some movement in biomarkers of senescence with senolytics. And this was a follow up trial looking at P16 and P21 to biomarkers of senescence and a whole adipose tissue before and after a single three day course of senolytics. And there does seem to be some movement there. But again, this requires invasive use of tissue and the other half of my world is actually looking at senescence markers and and adipose tissue. And I can just tell you, there's still a lot of bugs to work out. And that's why it's really important is that there's a related concept. This is not a biomarker thing, but there's another effort within the NIH Common Fund is it will be funding these mapping centers. So this really gets down into that single cell level and that we can really begin to characterize what senescent cells look like in healthy human tissue. And I'm really careful to say that this is not a biomarker project but this is the foundational evidence that's necessary for us to be able to build, validate, and standardize biomarkers of senescence. And so that's important at the tissue level. And there's a lot of other folks doing work, again, looking at this and linking it back to biomarkers that might be able to access in the in circulating cells. Once again, my two favorite humans, Marissa Schaefer and, and Nathan, they did this work looking at the induced senescence, measured secreted factors, began to test these in, under different clinical conditions. I'm coming down to a panel of SAS factors that they found that have been secreted and could be measured um, fairly reliably in uh, circulating um, 
I think it was plasma or serum, one of the other. And what I wanted to highlight with this is that what I found really interesting, and it's another great point for discussion for this group, is that, you know, we're talking about many of these factors as if they're sort of senescence associated. But I think a number of people, I heard some people in, when we were discussing before might be doing work in proteomics, there are others that are interested in other kind of biomarkers, is that a number of these factors aren't necessarily senescence associated only. You know, that there is sort of this larger sort of aging connection that we're sort of looking at it more of a general milieu that also encompasses senescence. And so I think that carries us into sort of, if there's time for it, spend a couple of minutes talking about how this relates to the alternative strategy, the one that's absolutely imperative that we make progress on if we're going to move any of these areas forward. And that's actually developing an aging outcome that can be recognized by regulatory officials. And so this has been work that I, I know Nir was on here and I am so grateful to Nir and many others that as a postdoc, I was brought in about six years ago to be the underling, the minion for this uh, development of this trial called TAME, Targeting Aging with Metformin. <laughs> They've kept me on and I'm now I have the opportunity to serve on the executive committee for this. This trial and I'm in charge of trying to develop or coordinate whatever the biomarker and biorepository strategy is for this trial. Um, so for those who don't know, TAME is targeting aging with metformin. It's a six-year double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial that will be conducted in, I think, now over 3,000 non-diabetic adults and 14 clinicals. And most importantly, it's the first trial that was designed, really crowdsourced, designed by a group of scientists across the U.S. to create a regulatory path for clinical trials to target age-related multimorbidity. And when we think about what that aging outcome would be, this again becomes really critically important is that all of these outcomes, they exist on a continuum and they're not exclusive. You know, so, you know, we have, as we go across this continuum, we have biomarkers and other proof of concept things on one end. And on the other end, we have things like median lifespan and life extension, other delayed frailty and, and age-related diseases, and the increase in uh, time, expense, and salience required to see that outcome as we go along. A really important is FDA, if we're looking at something that can be properly adjudicated for a trial, then we're talking about things that are out here on this end. So it's not that biomarkers are not important. It's just simply that for an aging outcomes trial that reads for the FDA is that we have to change function field survives first. And then we can actually have something that we can go back and begin to validate and standardize biomarkers against. Okay. So looking at that, if we have an FDA facing outcome, then if it's an effect as on aging, then we should be able to reduce the incidence of multiple diseases or geriatric syndromes. And those diseases should share few risk factors other than chronologic age. And so looking at that, the outcome then becomes this time to incidence of one of a collection of possible diseases or endpoints and age-related conditions. And then we have, again, this back to this Russian nesting doll thing. So that's right. That talks to the FDA. The part that talks to a lot of us that are actually doing this work is this sort of second effect. Effect, is that if the drugs affect on aging, is that in addition to that, is that it should improve or attenuate declines in functional outcomes and clinical phenotypes of aging that are important for persons who are aging and also communicates well to the clinical community. We also need to have a drug that can affect and improve biomarkers of aging in aggregate that really reflect that underlying biology and creates a platform that gives back to the scientific community to drive next stage. And so that was really the concept that went into designing the TAME trial, which again is a six-year trial looking at a clinical outcome that talks to the FDA. And then we have these other outcomes 
outcomes that we think are actually, I don't know, I think they, they touch me more as we talk about function and biomarkers. And, and thinking about this going back again to this best category thing, as we get back to these three that are just really critically important, we know we have to monitor, we have to look at safety. And again, the holy grail of pharmacodynamic and response. And so we need the drugs effect on some of the targeted processes that we have expect it to target and really to reflect the change in the underlying biology. And very important to all of this, especially when we're looking at some of these really large scale trials and some of these first kind of trials, is that it's incredibly important that we create a harmonized resource to the scientific community that more people can use to build. And so doing this, I don't have time to go into any of the details. I chose to keep it kind of broad today that we can look at this sort of collectively across different platforms. We think about these, you know, that we could have some biomarkers of aging that really reflect some of those pillars or hallmarks. A lot of those aren't validated or standardized yet. Morgan gave you a great explanation of what's happening with methylation-based biomarkers. And we have been really fortunate in the TAME trial to, you know, we've we've hooked Morgan in <laughs> and have asked her opinions and work. And, and there are so many people that are working in this space that I really do believe that as far as what we have developed right now, in the time since we began developing this a couple of years ago, I was a naysayer. But where the field has really come in the last couple of years is that some of those methylation biomarkers, they really are becoming some of our most advanced biomarkers for we can't validate them yet because it requires a trial for validation and qualification but these are at least things that we would have the platform to be able to do some you know larger 850,000 CPG sites so that we could begin to validate many of these methylation biomarkers and and of course there's going to be a lot of work into looking at deficit and damage accumulation whether these are from you know deficit accumulation just from clinical functional safety measures or if we're beginning to look more broadly at maybe proteomics or other um, sort of larger based platforms so that we can begin to marry uh, some of these ideas back together. And because looking at a trial is we might be starting this now, but it might not be ending for another six to 10 years. The most critical thing we can do is focus where most of my efforts have been is just to try to coordinate other ideas and to really focus heavily on space and data repository, emerging science and ancillary engagement so that we can make the biggest impact for the most going forward. Because again, it's really critical is that none of these can be validated without the trial. So we have to have an aging outcome trial for validation and qualification as surrogate endpoints. We become this really circular conversation unless we actually just sort of hold together and move this forward. And really important to do that is that we have to have the data, just like those that Morgan has shown and others are really developing, is that we have to support the analytic performance of these biomarkers, showing that they're reliable, showing that they're standardized, showing that they actually mean what they say they mean. And it's going to take a really critical and coordinated effort across investigators to make that happen. In addition to that, we have to have an outcome that we accept as aging. And so I think that that is sort of inherent in what we've been trying to do on the TAME trial and also are trying to approach on some of the harmonized efforts on the smaller proof of concept trials. And really critically, we have to have an effective intervention to, in order to do all of that together. So it's a tall ask and there's a lot to do. I can post these later for Allison or others, but these are just food for thought. We've been trying to develop, if you did have a perfect biomarker, what would its criteria? This is not me telling you. This is meant to be sort of a conversation is that I would love for those that are working on biomarkers that are thinking about trials is that this is a specific case for a biomarker for a trial of things that we want to see. And what else should we be considering so that as we move forward for validation that we can know if we have the perfect biomarker in front of us, what does it need to do?
we've learned a lot. There's been outcomes. There's been pain. There's been tears. There's been six years worth of grant writing. There has been a lot of work. And I think one of the biggest points is that, you know, aging reflects a collection of disease conditions, functional measures, biomarkers. We're really trying to capture this larger, broader accumulated deficit, looking at improvements. And this is going to, of course, mean composite measures and aggregate scoring. And I have an army to thank only some of those who are represented here. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>